What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of This Week in FCPA, Jay and I take things in a little bit different direction as we dedicate our commentary this week to the Department of Justice's 2020 update to the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document. The document was originally released by the Department of Justice in 2017. It was updated in 2019, and now it's been updated again a year later. We look at commentary by Matt Kelly. We look at reporting by Dylan Tokar on the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. Mike Volkoff has a three-part exploration. We look at some thoughts by Dick Casson on what it means for organizational justice. We consider Jonathan Mark's exploration from the forensic perspective. I have some thoughts on the overall themes of the new 2020 update and some of the specific tactical steps the Department of Justice. We take a look at some of the podcasts this week on compliance and coronavirus, a new offering on the compliance life, and 31 days to a more effective compliance program. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 208 for the week ending, June 5, 2020, the Trump administration attacks Americans edition. As peaceful protesters are attacked by the U.S. Army on the order of the Trump administration, Tom and Jay ask, now that Trump has his wall around the White House, will Mexico pay for it? While we are still self-distancing and away from the White House and its wall, we are back to consider some of the top compliance and ethics articles. But this week, we're going to take it in a little bit different direction because we're going to have one topic, and that topic is the 2020 update to the Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. So, Jay, what say ye? I say there's a ton of good stuff here. Let's uh, dive right in and You've had a, a few uh, blog posts on this this week, so why don't we start off with what happened when this came out on June 1st. So, Jay, this was a very soft launch, and when I say very soft, I mean very soft. Uh, I remember in the middle of the afternoon Monday, I got a LinkedIn IM from someone in South America. said, hey, what do you think of the new updates to the guidance? And I derisively emailed back, um, there have been no updates to the guidance. Please don't bother me again. Well, that person was right and I was wrong. Because about 15 minutes later, Jonathan Marks was calling me and he said, hey, what did you think of the new guidance? And so uh, we got a copy of it. And um, Jonathan actually uh, was able to do a um, comparison with the 2019 guidance, which was really helpful. He met uh, he, I, and Matt Kelly all talked, and we decided we would all try to uh, to take a look at it from our own perspectives. Uh, as you mentioned, I've been writing about it this week. Uh, it is not really a revolutionary document 
uh, Jay, I would say it's more evolutionary, but it's certainly evolutionary uh, with some focus. It has some key themes and it had some really into the weeds, specific tactical things that compliance practitioners need uh, to to go uh, to do rather. Uh, I guess a couple of the key themes for me, Jay, were the significance of data, but tied with continuous monitoring and continuous improvement. So they, they said you should look at data from risk assessments. You should look at data from questions that are raised in training. You should look at data on inquiries around policies and procedures. You should look at data in M&A. You should look at data from your third parties. And they really, I think, crystallize a theme that you and I have touched on literally for the last year, which is the growing importance of data in compliance programs. I had thought the COVID-19 and coronavirus health crisis, coupled with the economic dislocation brought on by the Trump administration's um, handling of the uh, coronavirus health crisis, would really uh, accelerate the trend in compliance of moving towards data, because you can't simply do the old lawyer-based, I'm going to sit down and interview you, uh, tactics that many of us had uh, grown up with. And now we've got the Department of Justice saying that's absolutely the direction you need to go. So that was sort of uh, a key theme uh, for me. And then the um, second one was, are you, uh, as a compliance function, adequately resourced? And are you, as a chief compliance officer, effectively empowered to function? So... Uh, even in this time of economic dislocation, the Department of Justice reemphasizes the need for compliance to be adequately resourced and a CCO to have not only a seat at the table, but also a voice. And then finally, um, I think it's moves from uh, uh, or to a point of almost continuous transaction monitoring. And that's something that uh, I've ad- advocated for the past uh, year or so. And I'm really only aware of one company that does that from the compliance perspective. That's Brewright Program at ABM Bev. Um, but uh, I think this is where uh, compliance is going. What are some of the key themes that you saw, Jay? Uh, well, I, I think, like you said, Tom, um, part of the thing that uh, this document has been evolving since 2017, the first time we saw it under Wei Chen is that although there may be just only incremental steps that have been made, that there has been uh, real efforts on the government's part to be transparent. And if you are now a CCO and you've read any of the analysis that's out there, whether it's um, Jonathan Marks, uh, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, yourself or Volkov, or uh, the numerous uh, commentary that's come out from uh, Big Law, uh, everyone really, there is no excuse now that if you ever show up in front of the government with a paper program, you're just going to be laughed out, laughed out of the room. And I think what will be interesting now is that there's been a lot of technological solutions that we've talked about on this podcast. We brought in people, numerous different experts to talk about AI, and we've talked about best practices programs like you have with Brewright. And I think what's going to be interesting is who is going to be the first there to the mountain to take this solution and bundle it together. And I think uh, 
you know, since it's going to be a technology solution, hopefully it should be competitively priced. And uh, when CCOs are, you know, going to the board now to talk about budget in this age of COVID-19, they're probably going to be asked to be doing more with less. So the question is, is, you know, with this guidance out there now, there is no excuse not for you to address lessons learned. And there is no excuse not for you to go after third party, uh, you know, data. So it seems to me that the lines are clearly drawn now about what the do's are and the don'ts. And there's no excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse for what happened during COVID-19. I absolutely agree, Jay. And if I could uh, maybe pick up on that last point, one of the things that I've been trying to communicate is that I don't think the government is going to give you a pass if you have an ethics and compliance violation that rises to an FCPA violation uh, during Q2 2020, um, sort of mid-March, all the way through the end of uh, this quarter. And this was driven home because the guidance actually specifically stated that a compliance program would be evaluated by the DOJ both at the time of the offense and at the time of the charging decision, and then finally at the time of resolution. Now, that language came from the antitrust compliance uh, program document that was released last year, but it drives on the message that if you are in an FCPA investigation two, three, five years from now, you're going to have to document what you did this quarter. And if you say, well, you know, I was working at home and uh, I was feeling a little blue and I couldn't get uh, documents because I didn't have the right passwords, that ain't going to cut mustard. Um, you have to be able to do the, your legal obligations now, and uh, that's at the time of the offense. Then we have at the time of charging, which is uh, during the uh, enforcement portion, and then in, then if there's a resolution, then at that time as well. Um, I really thought this also, Jay, kind of moved a little bit away from what we saw in the 2018 Benchkowski memo, which was a roadmap uh, for companies uh, to engage in remediation after the investigation had begun and during the pendency of, of the investigation. And that led many to, to draw the incorrect conclusion that I think this document is now corrected that, you know, I'll just wait. If I have a violation, violation at that point, then I'll put the money into my compliance program. Well, now you're going to be evaluated at the time of the offense. And so if you wait until there's a violation and then try to catch up and use the Benchkowski memo as a way to avoid a monitor or reduce your fine and penalty or even get a declination. I don't think that's going to happen. So the the proactive nature of of what you talk about and what your affiliated monitor colleagues talk about, I think, is uh, going to be absolutely critical. And this this language could not be clearer at the time of the offense. So uh, compliance programs need to continue to be robust. Uh, I would say that if you are uh, un- your, if your company's unsure kind of where it's going to be economically, why don't you look at the data that's already exists inside of your organization that you don't have access to? Why don't you look and see what tools, what licenses to software products you have available to you? It may be that through Salesforce 
or some other product or your ERP system, you can garner this information and start to look at transaction monitoring from the compliance perspective on a real-time basis. You've just never asked that question before. Uh, now you wouldn't go down the hall. You'd pick up the phone, but you want to call your IT team. You might want to call your sales team and see, hey, we do we have Salesforce or some other similar product? How are we using that? What's available to us? What's in the sandbox we can try out? So it's an opportunity to maybe explore internally not only what data is available, but what software products or technological tools you might have kind of on site that you haven't made use of because you didn't know about them. Uh, earlier, I had mentioned uh, Matt Galvin, and you had spoken about the program that he has, Brewright. Uh, can you speak to the fact, Tom, is any of his stuff open sourced? And I know he's been out promoting the program and speaks highly to it. Is there anything that is already prepackaged in a box that somebody could use to start to build a best practice uh, program leveraging AI? So if you were going to start, you probably would start with something like Salesforce. And uh, because Salesforce records all of the information from your sales perspective, who your uh, leads are, who becomes a potential customer, who becomes a customer. Did you get a uh, get on the bid list? Then did you get an RFP? Did you respond with an RFQ? Did you win? If you won, what was your response? Did you negotiate the contract after you were notified you'd won the bid? And then did you execute? I think Salesforce actually may, you may capture all of that information from the sales perspective, at least some of it. The same is true from your procure to pay cycle. Uh, every point in that is captured by your procurement. So what uh, does your procurement department have in terms of information or even a software which records every one of those steps? So I would maybe start with one of those, Jay, because I'm not aware of any off-the-shelf solution which would allow you to do real-time monitoring or rather transaction monitoring on a real-time basis. So to any of our IT people listening to our podcast, get cracking this weekend. You could be get, getting a huge first-mover advantage. So, Jay, we had a, a fair number of commentators uh, look at this. Were there any um, of the other commentary app that uh, struck you with perhaps a little bit different focus than uh, we've had or, or really went into it a way that impressed you? Well, as always, um, you know, our colleague Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, usually looks at things through an internal controls and socks perspective. So, uh, you know, as he was one of the early people on the bandwagon, like yourself and Jonathan Marks, uh, he took a look into taking a, taking a look at, does this, uh, is your program well designed and does it include comprehensive due diligence of any acquisition targets, as well as a process for timely and orderly integration of the acquired entity into existing um, compliance program structures. So this addresses something that came up a couple of years ago when the DOJ hinted and said, look, you know, there may or may not be some integration problems in your M&A process. And we want to basically, I, I guess, provide a safe harbor that if you bring the company in, you have to endeavor uh, correctly to onboard and do this moving forward. So that's one thing that we've been watching. And uh, Matt noted that. And the other thing that he noted is, does the company review and adapt its compliance program based upon lessons learned from its own misconduct or from other companies facing similar risks? And um, I think when you talk about Jonathan's 
uh, section in a little bit, he counted that there were either seven or eight times that this document listed lessons learned. So I think every time we get a little bit more of a glimpse into the DOJ's, DOJ's thinking, they come out with a certain number of buzzwords and what you can look for. If it's mentioned seven times, I think that they're pretty set against or set for you to be looking at those lesson learned and integrating them into your best practices programs, which be part of their continuous monitoring. So when I was talking about this with Jonathan Marks, he said that his initial uh, view was that business intelligence now meet compliance. And he really articulated that in his blog post on this, on his board and fraud um, uh, website. But he talked about uh, this in information that is now required as a step towards enterprise resiliency, uh, which he defined as an organization's capacity to anticipate, react, and adapt to change and new risks, not only to survive, but also to evolve. He certainly highlighted the lessons learned that um, are mentioned multiple times in this 2020 update, but he also looked at it things really, I thought, from a forensic perspective and noted that he sees the expectation that compliance is a, a journey. It's an it's ever-evolving journey. It's a, a journey that, frankly, doesn't end. You don't, uh, it's not just a one-and-done situation, but it's a not a situation where you do it, you put it up on the shelf for five years, and then you look at it later. Uh, you have to do updates you have to do uh, continuous uh, risk assessments, and this really moves to a much more robust risk management protocol. Uh, and uh, I do agree with his conclusion that this will move us towards uh, uh, enterprise resiliency using the business intelligence that the business community and you know people like you, Jay, use on a regular basis. But it's not that that's antithetical to compliance; it's just that. Compliance was run by lawyers, and lawyers' professional training does not include the words business intelligence, and don't even make any jokes about that. Uh, uh, I don't want to hear them um, because – Stop throwing softballs. Yeah, uh, but it's away from the paper program, and it's away from having your program on the shelf. It's a living, breathing document, and it's a part of your overall risk management strategy. Certainly, it's – a uh, anti-bribery, anti-corruption risk, but properly used and properly sourced, your compliance program can be not only uh, create uh, enterprise resiliency, but I would advocate and, and proffer, Jay, that it would make your internal controls more efficient and your uh, company more profitable at the end of the day. So I wanted to kind of circle back to your first article that you wrote earlier in the week when the uh, guidance was announced. And at that one, you were talking about answering DOJ questions on confidential reporting. And Mike Volkoff picked this up, uh, the same thread on part two of his uh, assessment of the new guidance. So I'm wondering if you could address this in terms of how to operate your reporting program and what are the new changes that the program asks you to mandate now? So the, uh, the DOJ, uh, the, the, format of the guidance is a question format. And this was because as it was originally drafted by Wei Chin back in, I believe, December 
of 2016. It was questioned for prosecutors to utilize in the consideration or evaluation of uh, corporate compliance programs. I'm sorry, December 2015, and so it began. It began as a series of questions. And so it's continued that format largely. And so each section we see, Jay, is uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Section D, confidential reporting, uh, structure and investigation, or some other section is a series of questions. And one of the blogs I wrote this week is I took the effectiveness of the reporting mechanism and I took each question that was posed in the 2020 update and suggested how you might answer those. And it really gives you a way to do a couple of different things with your compliance program, Jay. First, it gives you a mechanism to ask some pretty deep and probing questions that you may not have thought of as a chief compliance officer about your program. Certainly, it's questions the DOJ wants to know the answers to. But the second thing it does, it gives you a way to benchmark. So do you Hopefully you have anonymous reporting, but uh, do you publicize your anonymous reporting or do you publicize the mechanism to your employees? Has it your anonymous reporting been used? If so, where has it been used? Which employees have used it? Which business units have used it? Uh, are aware employees aware of the hotline? And I'm talking here about awareness, not whether they've used it. So it's a series of questions, and it gives you a way as a compliance professional to ask those questions of your own program. Yeah, great. Good stuff, Tom. So the next thing I wanted to bring up, um, our good friend of the podcast, Dick Casson, uh, head of the F- or former founder of the FCPA blog, has a question, and he's wondering, is the most important change in the DOJ's new, what is the most important change in the new DOJ's guidance? And he said the new guidance for evaluating corporate compliance programs squarely puts the spotlight on organizational justice, or what we might call fairness. And this question was added to Monday's version of the guidance. Does the compliance function monitor its investigations and resulting discipline to ensure consistency? This new question appears under the heading of consistent application, and that part of the guidance already asked, have disciplinary actions and incentives been fairly and consistently applied across the organization? Are there similar instances of misconduct that were treated disparately, and if so, why? So we've always talked about the apocryphal apocryphal salesperson who needs to make his numbers, and he might play a little bit with the books or give a, a, a bonus or a discount, but he's the high-flying sales guy and he gets treated specially and differently. And I think what Dick is getting to here in this piece is that if you are going to have people living up to the program, not only do you need tone at the top, but more importantly than tone at the top is that you have to have an equal playing field. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that uh, based on what's been happening in this country for the last month, for the last week in terms of organizational justice and fairness. So, Jay, um, organizational fairness and organizational justice is not simply about who gets fired or who doesn't get fired inside of a company. It's fairness in terms of promotion. It's fairness in terms of compensation. 
It's fairness in terms of how people are treated. So if we start with that and that that now is something that the compliance function has to, if not oversee or monitor, they at least have to be a part of that discussion. And I think that's what Dick really picked up on. And the Department of Justice clearly wants to make it so that some function inside of an organization is responsible for overall fairness. You could expand that out to culture. You could expand that out to accountability. So uh, I thought this was a big step for the DOJ. And perhaps, uh, once again, it's not revolutionary, but it's certainly evolutionary. And having compliance be responsible for this, or at least, if not leading the conversation, be a part of that discussion, uh, and having that requirement in writing, I think, is something that is certainly good. In terms of what that means, uh, uh, based on what we've seen over the past week with the killing of George Floyd and then the uh, response and certainly the Trump administration's uh, response, uh, back, many companies are now taking those concepts of organizational justice and organizational fairness to a different set of stakeholders, and that's their customers, their potential customers, those external to the corporation. You saw Mark Zuckerberg try to uh, say, well, we're, we're not going to censor Trump. Well, he's not. Facebook is not censoring Trump and violating constitutional amendment. Uh, Trump has no constitutional rights vis-a-vis Facebook. It's a private corporation. But what you saw was employees saying, we're not going to take this. We're not going to allow you to hide behind a false uh, uh, calculus that we determine the constitutional rights of Donald Trump. Uh, And that was a pretty strong statement by Facebook employees and Many more companies have been forced to confront issues similar to that over the past week. So, uh, Tom, uh, I think we're at the point of the podcast now where we talk about uh, what you um, put up this week on the Compliance Podcast Network. And first of all, I'd like you to talk about uh, the compliance life and where what you and Ryan Rabelais are speaking about over the next month. So uh, Ryan is a, turns out, a long-term compliance practitioner. He started in 2003 when he was a law student. Uh, Ryan has a fascinating background. He's one of the few people I know who went into the Marine Corps straight out of high school, uh, later went to college and became a lawyer. And he started with Baker Hughes when Baker Hughes was in the middle of a, of a very severe FCPA uh, enforcement action, stayed there for multiple years, and then, then became a chief compliance officer at a couple of organizations in Houston. So he has some great experience. And, and in part one, which posted this week, we talked about his winding journey and – uh, Ryan will be the first to admit to you he really had no plan to go into compliance and he had no plan to to have this be a part of his career path. Yet it shows just uh, if you follow the winds and bends and turns uh, where it can take you and really taking the best experience he had from each company he worked with and how it's impacted him. And he's been able to bring a wide variety of skills going forward. So it's, it's been a fascinating uh, exploration. It's a guy I've known a long time, but uh, even I didn't know his backstory. Then we, uh, uh, compliance and coronavirus, I had some fascinating discussions this week. David Wolf, uh, 
obviously is a, is a fellow animal name. Um, wolves and foxes always have to hang. But David does uh, audiobooks, but he's got a side side hustle around podcasting. And interestingly, Jay, audio white papers. And so I talked to David about uh, could a corporate uh, communications function or a corporate compliance program release audio papers, audio white papers to the corporation, and, and he had a resounding yes. And so that might be a way you could communicate now if you want to get a white paper out, uh, but you fear people wouldn't really have the time or take the time to read it. So it was a really interesting way to think about different types of communications. I had James Green. James is an uh, operational, excuse me, James is a risk management specialist. And he talked about operationalizing risk management during uh, the coronavirus cut. Crisis on uh, Thursday, I had Eden Jalot. Eden is one of my favorite people to interview. She's in crisis management, um, and uh, in your part of the world, in Los Angeles, Jay, mm-hmm. even in Santa Monica, I found out uh, as the uh, uh, protest march wa- went right by her home. And she talked about crisis communication during COVID-19. She also helps companies in bankruptcies. And one of the things I would like our listeners to think about, Jay, is I think starting in uh, sort of Q2, excuse me, Q3 and Q4, we're going to have an explosion of acquisitions in the M&A world of companies who come out of COVID-19 strong, uh, buying up distressed assets, whether those be in bankruptcy or companies that uh, are really struggling. And so Eden can really help you with both, both and it's a fascinating exploration. She's just a, a great resource for you in terms of crisis communication. Yeah, Eden's great. And she's a fellow ProVisors member out here in LA. So glad that you guys had some time to speak. Uh, to wrap up, it's a new month on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. And this week, or this month's topic is internal reporting and investigations. Can you give us a little bit more detail, Tom? Sure. So uh, we started on June 1 with uh, introduction into internal reporting and investigations. Uh, then the DOJ uh, had the temerity to release the 2020 update. So I had to uh, update uh, things that I'd previously written and podcasted on and recorded. So we had a few updates uh, on the fly this week, but we looked at some advantages of an internal reporting system. I took a look at a really interesting case study of a company uh, and their internal reporting system. On Thursday, I looked at internal reporting system best practices. And then on Friday, I expanded on some of the things that we talked about in this podcast, Jay. I answered uh, DOJ questions on internal reporting. Uh, uh, Jay, it's not in the show notes, but if I could also announce that um, I have a special encore presentation of Trekking Through Compliance. All 79 episodes of the original series are going up over the summer of 2020. If we ever needed Star Trek, now is the time. So I put it back out there. Uh, lessons on leadership, lessons on compliance, lessons on business ethics, all around the greatest Star Trek series ever, which, of course, is the original series. On behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like, you to thank, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 208 for the week ending June 5th, 2020, the Trump administration attacks Americans edition. Um, we're just very solemn for what's happening in the news and in our streets right now. So 
to everyone out there, we wish you safety and health, and we hope that things will start resolving itself in a positive manner. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. As Jay mentioned, I'm writing a series of blog posts on this, so check those out as they come out there daily on the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the stories which catch our collective eye. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to visit with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.